The Precinct Omega Weekly Podcast is supported by Horizon Wars Zero Dark, sci-fi skirmish war games in a fallen earth. Visit WarGameVault at wargamevault.com and search for Zero Dark. It's Friday the 30th of July. My name is Roby Jenkins. And my name is Bernard. And this is the news. Stand by for incoming intelligence. Oh, Lordy. We have to talk about tax again. So, on July the 1st, the European Union introduced new rules regarding the payment of fees on goods imported to any of their member states from anywhere else in the world. Now, obviously, the member states of the EU no longer includes the UK. However, other than the fact that UK-based companies importing to the EU are also affected by this, this whole thing has nothing to do with Brexit. Inevitably, small businesses all over the world, and even some quite large ones, are losing their frickin' minds over this change. But, as with the last issues that arose as an actual result of Brexit, this isn't quite the big deal that people think it is. I'll break it down as best I can and explain what you need to know, whether you're a small enterprise entrepreneur in miniatures wargaming or a customer of such. In the context of the episode a couple of weeks ago in which I talked about starter sets and the fact that I seem to have fallen into doing a series of live stream episodes reviewing sci-fi war games, uh, specifically skirmish games, I suppose I have to mention that Games Workshop is releasing a new version of Kill Team. And at first sight, it might actually be quite good. And finally this week, we'll take a brief look at Mantic's new arena combat game, Overdrive. They teased it a few weeks ago, but as we approach the release date, more and more details are being pushed out to show people how the game works and what to expect. Prepare for Intel Analysis. Now I warned you we were going to talk about tax. Specifically, VAT and IOS, the import one-stop shop. But let's start with some basics, because understanding these is key to understanding what's going on. And if, like me, you've been trying to get your head around this stuff, it can be frustrating that everyone seems to assume that you already know the basics, when in fact, most people don't. So let's start with VAT. VAT is value added tax. It's what's called a poll tax in that everyone pays at the same rate, regardless of income. VAT is levied on purchased goods and services, usually on goods and services that are deemed by the government to be non-essentials, or as they're often termed, luxuries. Now, we live in a vastly interconnected world, but still inside those artificially created geographical bubbles we call countries. And this presents us with the first challenge to understanding VAT, because different countries charge VAT at different rates and 
on different goods. What one country considers a luxury might be considered an essential in another. This is particularly the case when dealing with foodstuffs, but has controversially also been an issue with tampons and other feminine hygiene goods, which are patently essential, but treated by many countries as luxuries. The other thing that makes VAT complicated is that governments want to be able to collect it, obviously. Now, if I go out of my house and down the road to a local game store like Incom Gaming, say, and buy a new set of minis, it's pretty simple. When Incom bought those minis, they paid VAT for them, which they recorded. They then charge the VAT onto me, which I pay as part of the price of the minis. That VAT is then paid by Incom to HM Revenue and Customs, who then give back to Incom, in the form of a tax rebate, the VAT that Incom themselves paid. Because retailers typically buy at a discount on the RRP, the amount of VAT that they pay and then have to have back as a rebate is less than the VAT that I pay on the retail value of those minis. This should make sure that HMRC is always receiving more in VAT revenue than they are paying back to companies in rebates. Ergo, the company, the government, makes money. But this gets complicated if instead of buying from Incom, I buy the product online from a company based in, say, France. Because now I, in England, have bought a product on which I have paid VAT, but that VAT has been paid in France, whereas I am in England. So HMRC has enjoyed a net zero income from that transaction. If a product, once shipping is added on, can be bought cheaper in France than it can in England, there is no logical reason for me to buy it anywhere other than France. So businesses don't bother to sell products that can be acquired cheaper overseas. Of course, one way to address this is with customs duty, a fee on the import of goods from overseas. Customs duty is basically there to persuade people to buy local by making it more expensive to do otherwise. But customs fees are subject to all sorts of complicated international agreements and frameworks that mean that many products, including the ones most associated with our hobby, aren't subject to customs duty. Governments have limited ability to influence what goods are and aren't subject to customs, but they can very much decide what is and isn't subject to VAT. And the argument goes that VAT should be payable at the point where the transaction is completed, i.e. in the chair of the customer at the laptop, not at the point where it is fulfilled in the business premises in France, in this case. So no government wants less tax income, so unsurprisingly there is an international consensus that VAT should be chargeable at the point of sale. And so we come at last to IOS, the EU's new rules. Basically, in order to not interfere too much with small enterprise, the EU has long permitted movement of goods bought at retail across borders without charging local fees, 
as long as the value was below 22 euros. No VAT, no customs. Of course, in principle, you had paid VAT. You paid it, though, at the point of fulfilment, not at the point of sale. But where there's a loophole, there's a way to manipulate that loophole to avoid vast sums of tax. Goods could easily be moved across borders unobtrusively if they were shown as being worth less than 22 euros, and huge quantities of apparently low-value products were moved, particularly from the former Soviet Union and China, into the EU. And once they were in the EU with a paper trail to show that all their taxes were properly paid, there was effectively no limit to where they could be shipped at whatever value without being subject to further taxation. This situation enabled all kinds of money laundering, drug shipments, human trafficking and worse by abusing a system intended to help out legitimate small businesses, just like so many businesses in our industry. In response, the EU elected to end the €22 Euro exemption. That, by the way, is pretty much it. For purchases over the limit, there has absolutely been no change whatsoever. All the same rules still apply, and those rules mean that if I, in the UK, buy a product from a seller in France, I am obliged to pay VAT on that product at the rate charged not by the French government, but by the, on the one charged by the UK government. And the seller from whom I am buying it must, therefore, pay that VAT rate value to the UK government. Now, paying taxes to a government in whose territory you don't abide can seem counterintuitive. But you are, by international consensus, conducting business in that country by accepting online sales from that country. But when this involves sending reports to a foreign government whose language you might not understand and whose tax systems may therefore seem all the more confusing and intimidating, it can obviously make businesses inclined to simply decide not to sell overseas at all. This, of course, is bad for business, bad for international peace and stability, and bad for customers. So the EU's solution is IOS. In order to ease the burden of dealing with VAT payments in other countries that most small businesses find too complicated and intimidating, the EU has set up the Import One Stop Shop, which is a way for businesses to report all of the VAT owed on all of the sales made into the EU by businesses outside the EU. You have to register to use the service, and I won't pretend that it's intuitive but it's available in multiple languages and allows businesses to make a single report for all 27 member states of the EU, which is a lot easier than making separate reports to each state you sell into. But hang on, I hear small businesses cry. In fact, uh, Bernard, why don't you do this bit? Hang on, I've been selling goods to countries all over the world for years, and I've never had to make a VAT report to any of them. Why do I have to stop now? Trick question. You don't. If you don't charge VAT at the local rate on your sales and you don't pay the VAT owed on the goods, then your customer on the receiving end will be liable to pay that VAT in addition to the VAT they've already paid on the goods 
when they receive the product, you ship to them. But there's a huge difference between a customer being liable to pay and a customer actually being asked to pay. The more valuable a product is, or appears to be, and the more securely it is shipped, the more likely the end receiver is to get a bill on unpaid VAT and or duty. But anyone who orders small value goods from overseas will know that it's a lottery whether you actually get your shipment appraised for VAT at all. Collecting VAT carries a cost to the government, so the payoff of collection has to be proportionate to the cost of collecting it. The fact that the law permits the EU to levy this charge on all imports doesn't automatically mean that they will do so. If you are routinely shipping goods overseas of a high enough value that your customers are going to be routinely charged VAT, then you ought to have a high enough profit margin that you can afford the inconvenience of registering to pay your VAT in those various territories and be able to tailor your website so that folks can indicate where they are shopping to ensure that the correct rate, the VAT, is charged. IOS is just a way of reducing the cost and inconvenience of doing that. And if you can't afford it, or you don't want to afford it, the other option is to sell through an OLM. That's an online marketplace to you and me. eBay, Etsy, Amazon, Patreon, all of them are considered to be OLMs. Wargame Vault is an OLM. If you sell through an OLM, then the obligation of charging the correct rates of VAT and of paying that money to, to its respective government belongs to the OLM, not the merchant. Of course, the OLM takes their cut for providing you with this service, but it doesn't reduce the fact. Of course, the real kicker is on those businesses that are kind of around the middle. They're too small to easily be able to pay the fees associated with international VAT registration, but they're too large to want to be giving up a slice of those profits to an OLM. But to those businesses, I would point out that IOS is still making the basic obligations on your business easier, not harder. And if you weren't already engaged with those obligations, there's really nothing compelling you to engage with them now. You just have to be aware that they are out there. Be prepared for them to occasionally bite you, or more properly, bite your customers who get unexpected bills to take receipt of goods they thought they'd already paid for. If you find that this is a problem for you, then it's time to do things right. If not, well, don't lose any sleep over it. And for the customers who are supporting these businesses, you just need to appreciate that you may get the occasional unexpected bill. If you're not prepared to pay it, don't order goods from overseas. Don't be a dick and turn away a shipment because of an unexpected VAT bill. But by all means, let the retailer know that you've got one. It will help them to understand whether it's time to get professional help to make their websites more international friendly and get their tax affairs more in order. There. I hope that was enough tax talk for one episode. Let's talk about kilting. Now, it has to be said immediately that I've not played the new kilting. Not least because no one has outside the GW development team at time of recording. It's not been released yet, but as I've said before, GW is nailing its marketing strategy these days, and they are leaking snippets about how the game plays and 
My word, folks are doing the analysis already. Now, I don't plan to rehash what others have already gone over while the game remains behind locked doors, but I would certainly like to get my hands on the rules once it's out. Inevitably, it'll be launched with a limited-run box set of Orcs and Astra Militum, and the new minis are pretty tasty, but that's not what we're interested in here at Precinct Omega. No, what we want to know is how it plays. So, once it drops, I'll see what I can do about getting my hands on a copy of the rules to do my usual read-through and analysis. But for now, without going into the detail, let's talk about what we do know. The important thing to know about the new Kill Team rules is that unlike previous and disappointing iterations of the 40k skirmish concept, they aren't derived directly from the core 40k rules. Rather, they have been built from scratch. The other thing to note is that GW is learning. Not only have they been watching other small miniatures manufacturers to learn from the free R&D of manufacturing and design, but they've also been looking at the work of other game developers and learning from them. Inevitably, this has led to a split camp in the fan community, with some people accusing Games Workshop of being derivative and copy-pasting other companies' rules, while others are giving thanks that GW has finally noticed that game design has evolved in the last 30 years. I fall comfortably into the latter camp. It looks like the game will involve an integrated turn of some sort, with special circumstances permitting the limited activation of multiple characters simultaneously. Characters also have their own unique stat line. Not unique like Zero Dark in that you can make it up with tools you're given though. Unique as in not just being another version of weapon skill, ballistic skill, strength, toughness, etc. But there is an element of customization in that each character will have access to a choice of paths that unlock additional abilities. The term path also implies a meaningful experience track for campaign play too, although there's nothing official being said on that subject. The crucial thing that hasn't been addressed yet is how well the new game will accommodate conversions. With the popularity of Inc. 28 and its various incarnations, it seems to me impossible that GW can't have noticed that their fans would like to be able to field their own unique creations legitimately in a rule set without having to make laborious counts as mental gymnastics. However, I'm not holding out great hopes for this. GW wants more than anything else for people to buy minis. Remember, they aren't a games company. Every game they write, even the good ones, are only there to persuade you to buy more miniatures. So any game that encourages players to dust off old favourites or put good use to the endless piles of surplus bits they already own isn't one that is serving GW's best interests. Rather, I suspect Kill Team will be treated as a gateway game, one that will persuade you to buy great-looking new box sets of various veteran and character-led plastics as a first step towards expanding that one squad into your next army. Looking backwards just isn't Games Workshop's style. Still, perhaps I'll be surprised. When the rules drop, I'll see if I can get hold of a copy. Who knows? Perhaps Games Workshop might even learn another lesson from their unpaid R&D teams and give them away for free. 
And finally, with no particular connection to either of the previous two pieces, except that it's news and it interests me, let's talk about Overdrive. So first, Overdrive is so like Aristea in its concept that it's almost embarrassing. I mean, sure, Kings of War was like Warhammer Fantasy and Warpath was like 40k and Treadbull was like Blood Bowl and Armada is like Manowar and Dwarf King's Hold was like Warhammer Quest and Star Saga was like Space Hulk, but yeah, okay, look, I'm not saying that Mantic Games can only produce derivative games. In fact, all of their games that I've had any proper experience with have consistently shown an imaginative and innovative approach to the execution of their concept, but I am saying it's probably time for Mantic to step up again. They did it with Dead Zone, after all, and they've done good work with their intellectual property licenses for Mars Attacks and The Walking Dead, so I know they have it in them. They are high enough profile that it would be good to see Mantic stop reacting to Games Workshop and to start showing us what they can do. Oh, and there's Overdrive. To the best that I can recall, Games Workshop has never done a sci-fi arena combat board game. But Corvus Belli, of course, has. The 2018 game Aristea has had modest but consistent success that I suspect will only pick up with the end of lockdown. It's a terrific game, even if I'm just not clever enough to be any good at it. So will people who didn't buy Aristea buy Overdrive instead? Well... Let's break it down. It's, it's a board game played with three miniatures on each side that are drafted from the available selection. A selection that is starting with, I think, six characters, but which is certain to expand. You pick a play mode, which is really a mission or a scenario like King of the Hill or Capture the Flag. I mean, I used to play Halo online and I enjoyed King of the Hill and Capture the Flag, but... They were just different ways of doing the same thing. So I think Mantic is exaggerating the extent to which these scenarios really expand the game's replayability. Also, everything I just said could also be said about Aristea. Other than that, then, it's a hex-based game. It has six-sided dice and unique plastic miniatures. Yeah, the resemblance to Aristea just keeps stacking up, but it doesn't use custom D6s, which is a plus in my mind. More than that too, they do use the exploding dice mechanic, in which any roll of a 6 lets you roll another dice. Now, I'm not a rabid fan of exploding dice, but it's a popular mechanic, and it can be used effectively in a range of scenarios. The minis are big, chunky boys. Each one occupies three hexes rather than one, which is part of the background for Overdrive. You see, it's an arena sport for the creatures and heroes who are too big or too dangerous to participate in the already lethal sport of Dreadbull. And as I reported a couple of weeks ago, Overdrive is going straight to retail, without Mantic relying on a Kickstarter campaign to generate FOMO and push sales. The question, as far as I'm concerned, is whether this is a game that's going to offer anything substantially different in terms of a tabletop experience from Aristea. 
Is there any reason why someone would choose Overdrive over its more mature competitor? Or is there anything you might get from Overdrive that you wouldn't from Aristea? Because the game's not out yet, I, I could sit on the fence and say, well, it's too early to say. And I really, really do want to be fair to Mantic, because I have a lot of time for them as a business, yet... Based on the how-to-play videos that have been released, and the articles that they've published, and the other official content that's already out there, I have to say that my gut feeling is there's nothing in this game that makes it a substantially different experience to Aristea. Tactically, it looks slightly less interesting, and aesthetically, it can't seem to decide how seriously it wants to take itself. That said, if you're already invested in Dreadball, and haven't bought Aristea, then maybe you'd prefer to go with a familiar setting. Or if you've not even heard of Aristea before, well, you might pick up Overdrive, if you want to get in on the ground floor with the game. Or if you've tried Aristea and you just found it a bit too much of a fiddly experience, maybe the slightly lower time to table on Overdrive will tick your boxes. Of course, Mantic is entirely free to send me a review copy if they want me to revise that opinion. Intelligence logged. Analysis confirmed. Applying data. It's worth fessing up now that I'm working on a sports ball game for Precinct Omega. If you've looked at my website, you might have seen the ball monsters and the accompanying beta rules for the game of fiendish bouncing monsters. Well... The reason that the game never got beyond the beta was that it just never quite gelled for me. It was a failure of design, but I still own the miniatures and the intellectual property, so I'm not going to let it go, and eventually there will be a Precinct Omega fantasy sports ball game for ball monsters. It's penciled into my design plan for late 2025, so don't hold your breath. But, if nothing else, Overdrive is a reminder that getting a fully realised miniatures board game to market is a big capital investment, and Mantic are absolutely to be applauded for it. The fact that I can see Privateer Press just finishing up yet another Kickstarter for Warcaster tells me that Mantic has clearly overtaken Privateer in the stakes of who gets to be the second largest miniatures wargaming company. The gap between silver and gold is so vast that Games Workshop might as well be playing an entirely different game, admittedly, but Mantic isn't just releasing a new game with Overdrive. They're sending a message. And it's a message that small aspirants like me would do well to heed. It says, look how long we had to work to get to this point. So, while I still have my plans for Ball Monsters, I'll certainly need to think carefully about how I go about getting the game to market if I'm going to be competing in the same sphere. No pun intended. And I'll also need to make sure that my game, when it's finished, offers something more than just miniatures to clearly distinguish it from the alternatives. And speaking of distinction from the alternatives, what about this kill team thing then, eh? With this dangerously new innovative approach to game design, GW is muscling in on my territory. Clearly I've got them scared with my few thousand pounds worth of annual revenue. 
In all seriousness, Kill Team is a bigger threat to me than Stargrave ever was, even though I'm competing more directly with Osprey than I am with Games Workshop. The independent market for sci-fi and fantasy war games basically relies on GW to draw people into the hobby and then tries to gently ease a few of them away with tempting morsels. And while GW's games have been pretty dull wargame experiences, that has been a predictably achievable prospect. But if Games Workshop starts to write games that are actually built upon the idea of trying to evoke the experience of warfare in the 41st millennium, well, the indie market could face its greatest challenge in a generation. Oh, and before I go, I should talk once more about bloody tax. For the record, Precinct Omega isn't registering for iOS. The vast majority of my sales are made through an OLM. That's Wargame Vault. My retail operation, meanwhile, is small fry and does very little overseas trade. But I am planning on winding that part of my business down anyway. It deserves and requires far more time than I can really commit to it if I'm also going to sustain the media side of Precinct Omega and keep writing new games and supplements. So watch out for a bit of a clearance sale coming up if you like 6mm sci-fi or just want some cool 28mm robots for your Zero Dark teams. Meanwhile, if you order from me and you're outside the UK, well, just bear in mind that you may get an extra bill from, for VAT from your government. Recognitive function online. Logic engine online. Stand by for predictions. I am so looking forward to getting back to gaming. I like a solo game, obviously, but I do miss my local clubs. And while they've been meeting for a few weeks, I've been holding off on darkening their doors until I felt it was safe and reasonable. I set a fairly arbitrary date for that, which was Monday the 9th of August, and I set that quite a while ago. So far, I see no reason to push that back any further, but I can't just, like, go back. I need a plan. I need to know what games I'm going to commit to play over the next 12 months, and while I could just play my own games, well, that's not how you learn to be a better designer. So. I need to think about what games I can commit to enough that I can paint the minis, learn the rules, and throw myself into the play experience in order as a designer to get the most value out of the experience. So I thought it would be fun to talk about what I look for in a game to motivate me to make that sort of commitment, what features I'll be looking for, what games, therefore, I'm going to commit to, and what I hope to get out of my time spent on each one. And to discuss that, I'll see you again next week. The Precinct Omega Game Design Podcast is supported by our patrons on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Precinct Omega to help us continue developing new games and creating hobby content for war games enthusiasts all over the world.